They would love a base hit into the gap, and they could win it with junior speed, the stretch. And the 0-1 pitch on the way to Edgar Martinez. Swung on the line, down the left field line for a base hit. Here comes Joy. Here is Junior to third base. They're going to wave him in. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My, oh, my. Edgar Martinez with a double. Ripped down the left field line, and they are going crazy at the kingdom. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Crema. Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday to you, wherever you may be. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. It is October. We are closing in on World Series time. The final combatants have yet to be decided. And so Suzanne and I thought it would be a good day to talk about baseball. And if you're going to talk about baseball, particularly on a Saturday, you want to be doing so in the honored presence of tall guy Nathan Miller. Nathan at the board, our producer. How are you today, sir? Good morning, Gary and Suzanne. And holding down my position when I played the hot corner third base. Really? Third base. Very good. Third base. That that was the place I put my focus on years and years ago when I was a kid and I followed the great Brooks Robinson of the Baltimore Orioles hall of famer for sure. Oh, fantastic. He could knock in the runs too. He had some power. He actually won the AL batting title in 1964 and he often had over a hundred runs batted in, but his mainstay was his brilliant play at third base. He's a, a prototype of a third baseman. All these years later, people still talk about the vacuum cleaner, as they called him, Brooksy. <laughs> and then, of course, you have Nathan Miller. He knows his way around the third base line and in around the bag. Wasn't it interesting, Nathan, when when you would play third base? Did you ever have to? wait and wait seemingly for an eternity to see whether a ball was going to be hit in your direction, fair or foul, and you had to watch it closely? That's a good question. I mean, it depends on which side of the plate that the batter is on. You know, if there's a right-handed hitter, you're expecting one to maybe pull it down the line. But if there's a left-handed batter, you know, you're kind of more playing like a shallow, like, like a dribbler coming to you. So there's a lot can happen based on what side of the bat the plate that the batter is on. Well, you see, you ask a former third baseman, for all I know, he still plays third base in some beer league or something. You know, <laughs> Nathan's an athlete there, and, and you learn things. Baseball is celebrated for being an art, yes, but by God, it's a science as well. Suzanne, you grew up there, I always say in the shadow of, though not really, but you were born and raised in Chicago, and uh, you did you get out to Wrigley Field very often? Not very often, uh, but a couple of times. And uh, I attended many a little league game for my brother. And he played uh, shortstop, first base, pitched, did a little pitching, but ended up with his uh, little league career as the catcher. And he, he was built like a catcher when he was he was a young man. He was just he was like a little fire plug. Medium, so. medium height, not very tall, not too short, but definitely a stocky build. Yeah. I could see when a chest protector on, he yeah. would be an outstanding, he'd be a natural a coach or manager would say, Oh, you're gonna be our catcher. <laughs> My mom and I took him to a base a Cubs game one time at uh Wrigley, and he was very excited. And he got up and he screamed in the loudest voice he could, I love you, Billy Williams. (laughs) (laughs) There was a lot to love about Billy Williams. That's right. And uh, it's nice to see him getting some adulation because a lot of that went to Ron Santo. (laughs) Right. We've got a story to tell in a few minutes. We want to bring Kirk on. But, you know, I remember a day when Ron Santo was being honored. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, we'll tell that story too. I'm glad you I know the exact date. (laughs) (laughs) Let's bring on our guest and talk us some baseball he's back with us after a while kirk mcknight is a freelance writer specializing in interview based sports books ranging from baseball to hockey his work has been published in many sports blogs articles and travel documentaries kirk's 
one of his most recent books is The Voices of Hockey, Broadcasters Reflect on the Fastest Game on Earth. Lots to be said there, as a matter of fact. But not today. Not hockey today. is not today. That is correct. There is an updated edition of The Voices of Baseball, the game's greatest broadcasters reflect on America's pastime. And a new edition has front and center the late, great Vin Scully of the Los Angeles Dodgers and so much more. He transcended the fan base of the Dodgers and became an institution unto himself. And he was still uh, regarded as that when he passed away at age 94 earlier this year, just a couple of months ago. We are happy to have you back with us, Kirk McKnight. Are you still in Las Vegas, sir? I'm not. I that I, I noticed you are uh, reading the back of the paperback edition, and there's all kinds of new things happening since. <laughs> and I actually live in Wickenburg, Arizona, and I write for. Uh, I'm a staff writer for the newspaper here. It's a weekly, and uh, I'm in a nice, peaceful little western town, and out of all the city life of Vegas, and I couldn't be happier about it. <laughs> well, congratulations to you, Kirk. That's great. And uh, your your book, a book like The Voices of Baseball, would need updating, and there you are tending to it, having been one of those freelance journalists who gained access to some mighty important press boxes in the history of this grand, greatest American pastime by tradition and still is in the minds of millions. So you've come out with the book. It's It's been out, what, a little while now? We wanted to get an early interview, and I think that we did there, but you have, you have this updated edition. I think you also have an audio edition available. Well, not the audio edition, that's still in the works. Um, the, the updated edition will be available in April. Um, I just barely put all the new info in. So the press, you know, they're going to print up a brand new hardcover edition with all the fixes and all the um, reviews on the back, kind of like it does on that paperback edition you have there and pretty much all new material up until, you know, the passing of Vince Scully and uh, about 35 broadcasters chipping in to share their favorite Vince uh, Vince Scully stories. That's, and you could have an entire book or volumes (laughs) of Vince Scully stories. That is for darn sure. Yeah, Kirk, absolutely. Uh, thank you for writing this book and for updating it. And uh, best of luck on the audio project. Tell us what it is essentially for people wanting to get to know you and maybe start following your right. Congratulations on the gig in, in Arizona and your move there. It, it sounds to me like it's bringing you a lot of happiness. We're happy to hear about that. Tell us about your prime motivation for taking your appreciation for major league sports. We're talking mainly about baseball today, but it could just as easily be hockey. About what it is that drew you into major league sports in such a way as made you want to chronicle it. Um, I mean, it's it's mostly been about baseball uh, from the beginning because I'd sit there and started to realize I'm like, you know what, baseball ballparks are different. You know, I, I, I'm a big sports fan. And when I started, you know, when I started doing these projects, I watched all the sports, you know, very, very uh, faithfully. And, uh, and so baseball was the one that I liked the most. And so baseball was the one I was like, well, if I'm actually going to be a writer and start writing, maybe it needs to be the, the sport that I like the most and the sport I'm interested in the most. And, a subject that I'm interested in the most. And, you know, it, it, you go to enough ballparks and you start to say, well, people go to all the ballparks. So what if I kept going to ballparks or what if I, what if I were to kind of find a way to chronicle all these ballparks and figure out, you know, what makes it different and unique from the others. And so that's where the book kind of was born was basically uh finding a uniqueness about each ballpark. And then I said, well, I'm not going to be the one to t- tell that story. So I talked to somebody. I said, well, if I had the broadcasters do it, if I like start reaching out to broadcasters, they're, they're the ones who know about everything. And, and the, and the people who I know were like, Oh, you know what? That's a, that's a good idea. 
And it is, and it's worked out very well for you, I'm happy to say. As a place to just sort of jump into this, before we get to the broadcasters themselves, you talked about going to all of the ballparks. I know people who make a pilgrimage to as many, if not all, of the Major League Baseball stadiums that they can visit. Maybe they're retired. Maybe they drive around a lot in their RV. They take their home with them, as it were. And they go to all to maybe all of the Major League Baseball parks, and they see that they are unique. One thing in particular, Kirk, and I'd like to get your perspective on this. What about those stadiums that, if you're for the opposing teams, you might say is an instance of architectural cheating there. But what about the way they built the new San Francisco Giants Park while Barry Bonds still wore the uniform? What about the launching pad in Atlanta when Hammer and Hank Aaron was still cranking them out of the park. There was a design feature. Some critics might say a design flaw, not to resort to sour grapes, but it seems like there were players of such stature that ballparks could be built around their tendencies and their image. Well, I mean, there's two others that we could use as an example is Williamsburg and, and Fenway with Ted Williams and the house that Ruth built uh, with Babe Ruth is I mean, those are the two most popular as well. So you're, you're right. Like using these examples, you sit there and say, um, you know, are, are these parks tailor-made to these players? Well, these parks cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and, I, and I know whatever Fenway cost, as great as Ted Williams was, they weren't building a park for Ted. He just took advantage of it. And Ted Williams was the kind of hitter that could hit anywhere. You know, but that that uh, that short right field area really lent to his hitting style and was, you know, his power numbers came through because of that. Same thing with with Ruth and that short right field porch in, in old Yankee Stadium. I think in the book I said the, the Ruth that house built instead of the house that Ruth built. I think that was my quote was that's how it would be outside of New York is saying, you know, would Babe Ruth really be that great if he weren't in such a hitter friendly and having those dimensions? Because the old Yankee stadium left field was just, it just kept going and kept going. And, and uh, you know, John Sterling said, he said, can you imagine what kind of numbers Joe DiMaggio would have had if he had a, if they had a fence out there and like actual fair dimensions. <laughs> so, um, but you know, I, th- that's, that's kind of, you're going along that point and talking about Barry Bonds. That's great that Barry Bonds was able to break in that park with all those home runs, but they weren't able to win until they start focusing on the right thing, which was pitching and how to pitch in that park. And then they finally got over that hump. So any argument towards, you know, whether a park was built for a player that pretty much dies when that player gets traded or, or retires, but you just know that they have their way of taking advantage of it. I know at Fenway Park, they even have a dedication to Ted Williams on one of his home runs in deep right field, right, right center field, maybe about 20, 25 rows back. Among all the green chairs, there's one that's painted red as a dedication to one of the home runs he hit out there. Right. Yeah. I mean, good. you got a player like Ted Williams. I mean, he really he wasn't the best player ever. He was the greatest hitter ever, without a doubt. But he couldn't field and he couldn't run, but he could hit. <laughs> and, and that's why we the had subject. the designated hitter. He'd be perfect for that role. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Oh, here we go. Well, this is great. We're just this is like an amoeba conversation. This is kind of fun. We're going in different directions, second <laughs> by second. That's all to the good. Kirk, how do you feel? And Nathan, you weigh in on this too. Kirk, how do you feel about all these years later? I used to see it in ballparks when it was brand new, but the designated hitter rule, has it helped or hurt baseball in your opinion, Kirk? Oh, I mean, now that it's universal, it's kind of it's kind of hard to tell because to me, I mean, if, if you want to know my personal opinion, I've hardly noticed it because I've been noticing the other things more. This, re- this ridiculous ghost man on second to begin – uh, extra innings is just absolutely asinine. I can't, I cannot believe that that we're playing Major League Baseball with playground rules. They're dropping that next season. I know they are. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> and 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 like honestly, uh, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of things that are going to change about the game, but to me, it just kind of eased into there, you know. And then saying, you know, double headers are only going to be seven innings to to save the players and and everything like that, but. I, I was I was sitting there thinking, 
Oh yeah, they have DH in the NL now. Okay, well, I'm I'm more concerned about this idiotic rule in extra innings where like they want to get the run scored and they have the ghost man. So uh, it it is helping the game in the sense that the pitchers are are able to go deeper in the games uh, a little bit and uh, not have to worry about that. Managers aren't having to worry about the double switch as much. They're not having to worry about the pinch hitting and pinch running who's up in the pitcher spot, you know, things like that. They're able to manage a little bit more loosely. So I'm okay with it. If the AL is going to get away with it, the NOL might as well, you know, it's been, it's been a, a subject probably of resentment from the NL towards the AL for years. And now like, I, I'm okay with it being across all leagues uh, just for that reason. If AL was about to, was able to get away with it all this time, why not NL? You know, why should they have to, their, their pitchers are better anyway. They might as well cater to them. NL pitching is far superior to AL pitching most of the time. Now, now you got people like Verlander who maybe will beg to differ and that's fine. But if you, if you look at some of the, you know, cold hard stats, you'll notice that the NL pitching for the most part has been better. And that's because probably AL hitting is just so much better too. <laughs> Chicken or the egg. <laughs> Chicken or the egg. How do you feel about that, Nathan? I mean, I was always a fan of the national league and having their pitchers come up to hit. I mean, I feel like they should play the full part of the game. And it also brings an interesting strategy too. Like you were saying, when you know you get to that bottom of the lineup because basically all the time the pitcher unless you're Shohei Otani are batting at a nine hole and you're basically like the liability you get up and then suddenly the pitcher throws um just fastballs down the middle and the pitcher is just standing there so it's not like they make too much of an effort and they gotta develop their offense around that and I mean I think it just keeps the game flowing if a pitcher is not coming up to the bat and brings more offensive action to the game obviously it does because you have an actual hitter in the lineup but it's what people want to see in baseball they're always pushing home runs and exit velo and how hard they're hitting the ball and like Aaron Judge I mean they were really pushing for him to hit that 64 home run mark because they moved him from like the third to fourth spot in the lineup up to leadoff so he could get more at-bats and more home runs to keep hitting more and then achieve that mark and give the baseball audience what they want to see, which is people hitting the long ball out of the park. That, that makes a great deal of sense to me. One thing about the World Series, which is not far off, it, it will be interesting under the new rules because formerly what I used to say when I get into this discussion with people, occasionally it was an argument, but mainly a friendly discussion. Whenever I would know that the National League managers were purists back in the old days, if they would just play their games in the AL park and say, nope, we're the National League. We don't do things that way and don't put in a DH. Go ahead and bat your pitcher there if you think so much of it, because in the AL, they're ready for you. There and and it is the fans and all of the money that they bring in are crucial to this, Nathan. You make a great point. There, people want to see the runs on the board. I've met people. I remember being a kid in a shoe store, getting into a. I was pretty precocious, so I started arguing with this guy. It was pretty impolite of me, there. But I was saying, you know, we want to see home runs. Those are the fun things to watch. You know, I want to see Mickey Mantle hit a home run. And he said, nope. He was a lifetime Dodger fan. He was probably in his thirties. And he said, I love a good one to nothing game, or maybe two to one, where it's a pitching and defense struggle. And as a kid, I, I might have been eight or nine. I'm going, that just sounds too boring. <laughs> yeah, but if you're a if you're a defensive specialist or you love pitchers, it's your kind of game, I suppose. Yeah. You know what's going to be interesting also? I mean, I'm thinking about it, just listening to all this and talking about it. It's going to be interesting next year when they take the shift away and we can go back to focusing on the way baseball was played for yet forever. <laughs> I'm a fan of that. Keeping in mind uh, there, and then I want to move into Suzanne has a uh, a poignant story to share it that we both experienced there. I want to get to that in a moment, but let's go ahead and lay it out on the table. Kirk, Kirk, and then, um, and then please Nathan weigh in being the local. 
uh, we're talking about the Seattle Mariners. They hadn't been in the playoffs for what, like 21 years or something. And no, they did not succeed. However, they did succeed in getting into the playoffs. Do you see hopeful prospects, Kirk, for the Seattle Mariners as an organization? You're muted right now. Okay, I'm unmuted again. Um, sorry, could you repeat the last of that question? I was I was reading the screen when you were talking. I got a little distracted. Oh, sure. No problem at all. I was just asking what, in your personal opinion, is the meaning of life? <laughs> 42. We're talking about the, the Seattle Mariners. They finally made the playoffs after a couple of decades. Do you see hopeful prospects for them, their roster, the management, the organization going forward? Yes. I mean, getting that, uh, what's his name? Is it Castillo? Who's the guy you guys got over from The pitcher, Cincinnati? Luis Castillo. Luis Castillo. That was a huge move for you guys. Uh, I feel like getting, you know, I feel like Carlos Santana is getting a little late in his, in his career, probably where he's not going to be as effective of a pickup for you, but you guys have that Rodriguez and very much promising with all that. And uh, I see a lot of things happening and I see that, you know, if you can hang on to some of those players like that, that it will be an, uh, an enticing thing to come up to Seattle to play. Uh, the, the AL West that we were just talking about this the other day, if you think about the AL West for years, the Rangers kind of had free reign, uh, depending on what the A's or the Angels were doing, because, you know, uh, it was always um, the – Astros weren't around, you know, and now all of a sudden the Astros are this big powerhouse. They came into the AL West on their building, uh, building years and things like that. And then um, all of a sudden now they're, (laughs) they're a a, a dynasty. And so there needs to be some team in there to kind of mix it up. Uh, And now I think that the Mariners have a chance to really take that because the angels haven't shown any kind of wiggle room and, and neither really have the A's. They haven't been spending the money. The Angels have been spending the money, but they haven't been improving in the areas they need to. So I feel like it's great that, that Seattle is kind of coming up now. And maybe players will see that, that, you know, a chance to take that division and take Houston away from it, uh, always being the division winner year in and year out. What do you think, Nathan? Is that safe? We're trying to give you some good news. I just know the Mariners have a really strong camaraderie, and that's what's really helped propel them through the season. You know, they're always sticking together and never giving up. And when something happens to a player, I mean, there's everybody's chipping in and covering for them and are helping them out. And with somebody like Julio Rodriguez, I mean, he always has a smile on his face, and he's just. I feel like the club is just a lot more happy and relaxed when he's out there having fun. And he just had his debut season this year and all the things he did, you know, breaking home run records as a rookie, as a Mariner, and then going into the home run derby and just, you know, mashing home runs all over the place, unfortunately uh, fell short at the final round to Juan Soto. But it was still very competitive. And this guy... You know, he's got everything you would want in a player. You know, stellar defense, uh, high speed on the bases, power to hit the ball over the fence while having contact to put the ball in play. And he's going to be easily the front face of the Seattle Mariners and still have a couple other rookies like Kyle Raleigh, who is really coming through this season as one of the best catchers in the league. Uh, American League, at least. And Evan White still kind of waiting to hear from him if he's going to be coming back and playing first base. That's why we had Santana in the meantime to help fill that role at first because Ty France wasn't going to do it alone. And Evan White, I mean, he's still up in the air. I'm wondering if he's even going to come back to the Mariners. So we'll see what happens with these rookies. Nathan, I heard you say earlier that it was they're a young team. So I know that um, historically Gary has talked about how they keep rebuilding and rebuilding. I'm I'm glad to hear you say they have camaraderie, but I don't think they have a lot of years together. So do, does it seem like the team is coalescing as a new team that that you know hopefully 
they, you know, the management won't trade away those people. I mean, it goes beyond the Mariners team too. I mean, there's the AAA teams. A lot of these guys have known each other and played with each other in, you know, like AAA or Arkansas or AA. So they're familiar with okay. each other. It's not just, you know, the Mariners. They've been with each other for a while. Some of these guys got drafted at, you know, 17 years old and now they're like 21. So they've been around each other for maybe three to four years. It's not like they're just all coming together in this debut season. As they okay, play with the good. Mariners. No, that, that's a that's a good answer because I I was wondering how could they could be both new and have a lot of esprit de corps because I thought that that usually takes a couple of years of struggling together to develop that. But you're saying they they had that development in in other places before they got to the Mariners. And then there's some veterans like J.P. Crawford who just have radiating energy that just you know, spreads out among the players and they all, you know, bring that in to themselves and form good relationships with each other. Yeah, good. Kirk McKnight is our guest. He he is the resident expert. We have an aspiring resident expert who understands far more about baseball than Suzanne and I do. We're lucky to have both of them in here in the booth with us, as it were. We're at the bottom of the hour. Let's go ahead and take our break. And when we come back, You'll hear more about Kirk McKnight, where you can reach him. This is our seventh inning stretch. Our seventh inning stretch, (laughs) as it were. So after we're done stretching, we'll come back and you will meet the greatest broadcasters in the history of baseball. Kirk McKnight, our guest. We are Manson Mitchell. Give us a couple of minutes. We'll be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Carl Petrie for a review of the classic War of the Worlds radio broadcast from October 30, 1938, with Orson Welles and the place in New Jersey where the fictional craft supposedly landed. On Saturday, Leslie Rule sets a spooky pre-Halloween tone with stories from her latest book, Haunted in America. Bringing you fascinating talk since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. An alternative to everything else on your radio dial. Alternative Talk, 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. That was our seventh inning stretch, and that was Ben Scully singing about Harry Carey. We are talking with Kirk McKnight, author of The Voices of Baseball, and those are just a couple of The Voices of Baseball. Kirk, if people want to get your book and the updated version next year, and anything else that you have written, this is a good time to let our listeners know the things that you're up to and how to get in touch with you. Well, if you guys want to get the book at a very, very good price, um, the publisher 
is offering a 30% off discount if you order through their website. And their website is www.roman.com. And Roman is spelled R-O-W-M-A-N, not like the Roman Empire, but Roman. Um, if you use coupon code R-L-F-A-N-D-F-30, uh, that's, that gives you the 30% off. And honestly, for a hardcover edition for that price, it is going to be beautiful. There's beautiful pictures um, throughout most of the chapters. Almost all every team chapter has a picture for the with their ballpark to start off the chapter. And uh, there's a ton of new material. I had to dial back a lot of the old material from the original editions to make way for all this new material. So it's quite okay. It's uh, it's worth it. <laughs> in, in a way, it's like two different books, right, Kirk? It really is. Cause I mean, this, yeah. the, 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 the addition you guys have, there's a lot of focus on the past broadcasters. You know, we're talking about Harry Carey. I mean, that chapter got completely eliminated from the book because I just had so much new material from, uh, over the last six years of everything that's happened, you know, two teams have won a World Series that have never won since the uh, paperback edition came out. That's with the Houston Astros and the Nationals. The the Padres threw the first no hitter in their history uh, in 2021. That's something new, and just a bunch of different things like that. Shohei Otani, he wasn't playing back when the book came out the first time around, and we have all kinds of new stuff on him. I mean, uh, there's there's also, countless new stuff. Well, also the Cubs and the Cubs for 108 years. It took them to get a world series. I'm wearing ah! my Cubs shirt. Oh my goodness. <laughs> We're both wearing our Cubs shirts today. <laughs> Should have put mine well, on too. Uh, there we go. The, Friendly confines. And Kirk, I also know you have another book with happens to be with my favorite sport. So what is your other book that you have out? Uh, the Voices of Hockey, um, that's a, that's a, about a year newer than The Voices of Baseball, but there you go. it's a, it's a, it's got a lot of the good guys in it though. You know, Doc Emmerich, Marv Albert, you know, Gary Thorne, a lot of the voices, and those guys are actually in The Voices of Baseball, believe it or not, because uh, they paid their tribute to Vince Coley as well. Oh, but, very good. Very so, good. Yeah. Okay. They were happy to do it. All right, the you're the man for the good sports book, especially the announcer. He is the connection. That's yeah. right. <laughs> uh, Suzanne, I'd love for you to share the story about your mom. We're going to go into some what you're looking at me meaningfully. Um, Kirk wanted to put a little bow on the Mariners thing. Okay, let's go. Wait a minute. The manager's coming out to the mound. We're I am. Changing I'm, I'm, out ta- the I'm talking story. to the pitcher, and I'm saying we, we need to do something else here now. Kirk's, Kirk's <laughs> perspective on the Mariners and their future. He had some insights to share, and fire away, Kirk. Share with our listeners. Well, I just feel that one more positive thing to think about with the Mariners is the fact that Robbie Ray, you know, an AL Cy Young award winning pitcher didn't have his best season last year and they were still able to do what they were able to do. I think he's going to get a little more accustomed to that ballpark um, and realize that it is a pretty good pitcher's ballpark compared to where he pitched in Toronto and Arizona uh, and and also, I was giving the example while we were on our break, I was giving the example of the brewers around the early 2010s to mid-2010s. They became a pretty attractive place for the uh, free agents and for people who are looking to, you know, change ball clubs. And then they started to get names like Yelich and, and um, you know, CC Sabathia, if you want to go back as far as 2008, you know, for that mid season trade that basically boosted them in the playoffs. I see the Mariners kind of following suit in that where, you know, you're starting to get the attraction about it. And when you have players like Rodriguez, other players are going to be like, well, yeah, I want to be in front of that guy so that they pitch to me (laughs) and not pitch around me. (laughs) And, uh, and you'll see them want to be there and be in that lineup. It does, it does, it does add a lot of enticement to a player knowing that, pitchers are going to want to pitch to you instead of pitch around you to get to somebody else. Well, thank you for that, Kirk. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, You have a granular understanding of sports. It's uh, I rely on your commentary. Uh, Suzanne, tell everybody about your mom, the Cubs, Ron Santo. How do they all fit together? 
They all fit together on, I believe it's December 10, December 10, um, 2010. I should know all this, right? 12, 10, 2010. Um, it was the day that we had the memorial service for my mom. Downtown Chicago. In downtown Chicago at the church, which is across from the John Hancock building. So it's on Michigan Avenue and it's it's old. It's it's right there on the Gold Coast in the uh, heart of Chicago. And while we were gathering all of our family and friends and people to say goodbye to my mom, there was a second funeral. And while ours was ending and things were were changing locations and people were getting up and milling around, there was a whole big police escorted funeral for Ron Santo that day. And so um, he was at the church, which was probably three or four blocks away. This was all happening in a very small area around Chicago and uh, two funerals at once. Only we didn't have any horns blaring at the one we attended. Right. (laughs) As we were loading your mom's casket onto the hearse after the service. And it needs to be said parenthetically that I was actually, I can actually say I was a pinch pallbearer. Yes, you were. I didn't make the team no. there. And then your father, there, his uh, ex-wife, he was there to honor her and he was asked to be a pallbearer, right? Yes, only he didn't attend. Right. He could not attend because no. of this intervening tragedy and loss right. in the family. Right. So everybody starts looking. Another at loss. Uh, right. Yeah, another had, loss. We had two deaths in 10 days. It was very weird. And, and it was something else. So anyway, I was a pinch pallbearer. And it was interesting because these cars were going through downtown Chicago with Cubs flags on. Horns and, blaring. For Ron Santo. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a unique experience. You wouldn't experience something like that twice. I'm quite sure. No, no. And uh, yes, yeah, so that's a Chicago story. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Kirk, let me go ahead because I, I just wouldn't want to do this interview without giving you the opportunity. Please tell our listeners, all of us, what it was like when you picked up the phone one day and on the other end of the line was Vin Scully. It's it's a great story that uh that I am actually including in this edition. I didn't include it in the year previous, but you know, I, the phone rings, I had tried a couple of times to get Vin to do an interview and always, it's not Vin's decision when those things are going saying, no, no, it's not Vin saying no, it's his PR and his media relations people with the Dodgers saying, no, no, uh, Vin needs, Vin needs his space. He needs his time. Vin will give you any, anybody the time of day or he would, if you, if when you, when you read the chapter, you'll know that he did give you that time of day. So I reached out the third time to the media relations guy after the Dodgers lost, uh, I believe to the Cardinals. I think that was in 2014. I'm not sure, but, uh, they lost the first round. And so a couple hours after I send that email out, I get a phone call and it's Los Angeles number. And, you know, I, I'm like, hello. And they're like, hello, is this Kirk McKnight? And so as soon as he said, hello, I knew it was Vince Scully, you know, and he says, this Kirk McKnight. And I say, yes, this is Kirk McKnight. And like, you know, I barely got the words out because I was so shocked. (laughs) And he goes, I, this is Vince Scully. And I broadcast Los Angeles Dodgers baseball. (laughs) Which was a major revelation to you. You didn't know that before. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Here's a, here's a guy doing a book on baseball broadcasting. Uh, and this guy is reaching out to me and he has to clarify that he does broadcasting for the Los Angeles Dodgers. I just couldn't believe it. Like just the, uh, just the unassuming nature that Vin had with me, just that story is one of millions of stories. Well, I don't know, millions, that's a lot. Millions is a lot, but thousands of stories easily of just the time that he would give and his graciousness. And uh, those 25 minutes, best 25 minutes of any interview I've done for any of the three books I've written. And he was very prompt. He knew that I had an interview with Howie Rose of the Mets afterwards. And he was very, very exact about time and very respectful of the fact that 
um, you know, res- respectful of the fact that Howie would be waiting for my phone call. And he even said, please tell Howie I said hello, you know, and hang up the phone with him, pick up the phone for Howie. And I'm like, hello, I just got off the phone with Vince Cole and he wanted me to tell you hello. And of course, I was just like, wow, that's that's quite an honor. Greatest broadcaster in the entire world saying hello to me, you know. <laughs> so we got off to a good start for that interview, too. <laughs> I'm so happy that you had that experience. I met Vin Scully when I was a teenager after a preseason game, exhibition game as they call them, when the Angels, or actually the Dodgers, were in Anaheim. They were playing the California Angels, as they were known at that time there. And my brother and I went out to catch the game, and I was determined that I was going to get Vin Scully's attention, which I did thanks to the Good intervention of a wonderful man, his partner, Jerry Doggett, his broadcast partner. And uh, Jerry was kind enough to uh, let Vinny know that someone wanted to say hello. And I did. And we chatted just for a couple of moments. But I can say I met Vin Scully. It was one of the highlights of my life. And the way in which you portray him, Kirk, is so accurate because for being a man of great accomplishment. He he is absolutely known virtually unanimously as the greatest of all time among baseball play-by-play announcers, sportscasters, and even broadcasters. He is in a few pantheons. He even hosted a, uh, it was a, a game show, a morning game show called It Takes Two. And while that was on the air, that was my second encounter with Vin Scully. Went back with my family to visit uh, our family and friends in the Pittsburgh area, and we decided to take in a Pirates game. Now, I'm not talking about the old days in Three Rivers. My other encounter with Ben Scully was when I waved at him at Forbes Field, and he's there in the press box, in the broadcast booth, and he is such a modest man. This just tells you what kind of a man he was. I waved with a big smile right in his face, and before he waved back, he actually looked over his shoulder to see whether or not I meant somebody else. Because <laughs> there I, he's the Dodgers broadcaster. I'm in Pittsburgh and I'm waving hello. And he waved back. And I thought, this is a guy who is absolutely the opposite of someone who is full of themselves. He just was not that way. He was a man of tremendous character. And I think everybody who ever met him or worked with him there would have to agree. I, I agree fully. And it's, you know, I sent the email out the day after his passing to the broadcasters to about 60 of them. Uh, I got about 35 responses. And one response that very day was Marv Albert, who wrote up a few paragraphs, you know, and, and he was very, he was very uh, insistent that I change a couple of things after the fact. He sent me a follow up email like, hey, could you just change this word or something like that? Because he wanted to he wanted the world to know like what Vin Scully meant to him because, you know, Vin was sitting in there and asking Marv about a couple of things, broadcasting tips. And Marv was sitting there like, this guy is asking me for broadcasting tips. And I mean, we're not talking about any ordinary basketball broadcast. We're talking about Marv Albert, you know, right. one of the legends of all legends. Uh, you know, I'd put him up there in, in one of those tiers just below Vince Scully as far as all-time greats in, in the sport of broadcasting because he's done it all. Same thing with Bob Costas. And these guys are talking about Vince Scully like just like as the icon that he is. And these guys themselves are icons. Icons discussing the icon, and I can see why they would. There was a great love for Vince Scully. His romance with the game of baseball and sports generally, to be sure. But his attitude toward baseball elevated the appreciation of the sport to something that drew comparisons. I'm sure Vince Scully would be blushing if he heard this, drew comparisons to Shakespeare. And in fact, Vince Scully would quote Shakespeare. He would quote the Bible. To him, baseball was not just the great American pastime. It was a lesson about life the romance and the drama of life. And he communicated that every game, every time he was behind the mic, it was just amazing to listen to him. And uh, so, you know, you talk about Vin Scully and we'll move on to a few others in our remaining minutes, but let me tell you what kind of man Vin Scully was. He bought a gorgeous home. It was a mansion, rather palatial, actually. It was the last home that he owned. When he bought it, having gone out to see it, he made an offer at a time when 
it was getting to be, you know, the economy was right for somebody rich to make an offer on this palatial residence. It was going to change hands and Vin Scully wanted it. He offered more, I believe it was in excess of a million dollars above the asking price. Who does this? Well, <laughs> Vin Scully did it because he told someone, I don't want to pay the asking price and insult the owner of this beautiful property. <laughs> Obviously, the man put his love of this home into it. He took such artistic care of it. It was his dream. I want to offer him the kind of money that will honor the effort he put into it. Boom. Oh, say what now? When you could get it for over a million dollars less, he had the money. Instead of saving it, he wanted to honor the previous owner or the soon-to-be huh. previous owner. And that's the kind of thing you just don't hear about. But it really happened, and it happened because of the character and the personality of Vin Scully. Wow, that's a good story. That's amazing. <laughs> when it comes to uh, yes, please a finishing oh, thought. No, did you? Uh, I have a quick Vin Scully story. Was because there's two broadcasters that I've interviewed that have now passed on. One is Vin Scully, and two is Dick Enberg. Oh yes, and, and they both retired at the end of 2016. And Enberg's at the end of a 60 year broadcasting career, while Scully was at the end of a 67 year career. And what was interesting was. You know, they had all these, uh, you know, tributes everywhere he went. You know, the teams paid tribute to him. And uh, when the Padres, when the, either the Dodgers were in San Diego and San Diego was paying their tribute to Vince Scully, Charlie Steiner, you know, Vin's uh, broadcast partner, just went up to Dick Enberg. He said, buddy, you picked the wrong year to retire. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, who knows? Dick Enberg's calculus might have been different because, I mean, my goodness, he'd, he'd been a broadcaster for the Angels for years and years. And to name drop one more time, if you'll forgive me, I actually met Dick Enberg in the parking lot of, of Anaheim Stadium. Also a fine gentleman, a very kind man with a, an easy smile and a friendly personality, great voice. And it was a real pleasure and honor to meet him as well. But this is what it is. There, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. A lot of it is about the market, because when you have marquee voices, Vin Scully, number one, but also Dick Enberg, and both of them very popular, beloved broadcasters, they did it a certain way. They put it on a higher platform so that their, their coverage, their play-by-play -play broadcasts were accessible, including mentally and emotionally, to everyone who had an interest in baseball. It's the way they did their jobs. There are others, and this is an opening for you, Kirk. There are others who are regarded as, and I think the, the industry term is homers. They are for the home team, no doubt about it. They're cheering them on. They are they're cheerleaders. And that's okay, depending on where you live. One of the big examples in my life, and he has long since passed, was the Pittsburgh Pirates' Bob Prince. Mm -hmm. I went back to visit my relatives back in the Pittsburgh area a few times, and baseball was big back there. And I'm sure still is, though the Pirates haven't seen success in a while. But Bob Prince was a notorious homer. He was rooting them on. There used to be a, a chicken place that offered free chicken during a certain time frame after Willie Stargell had hit a home run. Bob Prince had no problem sitting there behind the mic announcing to God and everybody, put some chicken on the hill. Well, he used to say to encourage him to hit this home run and the people would get their free chicken. That wouldn't work in every market. But depending on where you were, do you agree with me, Kirk, that you can, as it were, get away with that sort of thing because the fan base loves you locally? Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And I know that I know that one person's favorite broadcaster is another person's least favorite. I, I get people all the time tell me how much they can't stand Joe Buck. And I'm I'm like, <laughs> Joe Buck's a great guy. I mean, it's just he's on the national spotlight, but the, the, the one broadcaster who was very notorious for being a homer in, in this generation, uh, he retired a, a year or two ago, was Ken Harrelson of the White Sox, you know, always calling the team the good guys. Good guys are on top, five to one, you know, and just very, very much homer, very homer kind of oriented broadcaster, great broadcaster outside of that. I, I feel like he did a great job calling the game, but that was everybody's hang up about 
somebody like um, uh, Ken Harrelson was. He was such a homer. Listening to the Game 1 broadcast and Rick Riz and Aaron Goldsmith, I'll just say this. When Jordana Alvarez hit that walk-off, Rick gave it just as good a shake as he would have is if the Mariners hit that home run. And that's what I respected. I respect that so much. He could have done a no call or uh, it's called a no sell call where he could have been like, uh, there's a long drive. Jordan Alvarez hits the home run and the Mariners win it. Uh, or not the Mariners, the Astros win it seven to five or whatever the score was on the walk-off home run. But no, he gave it, he gave it the, the emotion that it deserved. It was a walk-off home run. Uh, they'd score five runs in the ninth and, you know, Rick as a broadcaster, he has that duty to do it and he performed it. It wasn't his team that had hit the game winning home run, but as a broadcaster, he gave that moment its due regard and its due respect. And I respect very much Rick Riz as a broadcaster for that. I want to turn for a moment, uh, Kirk, to the guys that made it funny. Yes, I'm thinking of Bob Euchre, but another gentleman, Bob Prince, as a matter of fact, there, who was, if I recall, actually fired by the Pirates. I thought that was one of the dumber decisions the organization could have made. And then they brought him back very late in his career. But Bob Prince had a chance to be the San Diego Padres play-by-play announcer. And because he knew that Southern California in its entirety was Vin Scully's domain, he turned that down. And they gave the job to a gentleman by the name of Jerry Coleman. Now, Jerry Coleman was as popular for his miscues as for his personality, which was wonderful. He was a, a warm man and much beloved. But he's the kind of guy who would watch a player slide into second and announce that he hit a stand-up double. <laughs> that, that was Jerry Coleman. But the fans loved him for it. They loved Terry Carey for all his miscues, too. <laughs> As later in Harry Carey's career, like he definitely dropped the ball on a lot of things. And uh, I'm sure he was much more poignant and on top of it in his Cardinals years and even his White Sox years before he came over the Cubs. But, you know, it's Harry Carey. You just got to love him. (laughs) And Suzanne, being in the Chicago market for a lot of those years, would hear those broadcasts. Is it fair to say that Harry Carey really ascended to the storied Cubs franchise in all of their frustration and all the love the local fans had for them. Nevertheless, Harry Carey was the St. Louis Cardinals broadcaster there in the Midwest, then across town, South side with the White Sox. But when he went to the Cubs, it's almost like a graduation. It seemed. Yeah. I mean, he, (laughs) he, there's all kinds of stories about Harry Carey and why he got fired. And we don't have to get into that. It's scandalous as it is from the, from the Cardinals. But uh, one of the things that Steve Stone, his former broadcast partner, who is a broadcaster for the White Sox now on TV, just basically said that he was a character for baseball. Um, I, I, I'm not quoting him perfectly, but just that he was a caricature of himself kind of thing. And, and he was good for the sport and what he brought, whether it was accurate or not, he was just good for showmanship is what it really was, what it boiled down to. Ben Scully, Dick Enberg, Bob Prince, Harry Carey, of course, a character like Jerry Coleman, another one in Hawk Harrelson, his nickname from playing days, all wonderful gentlemen and some of the greatest broadcasters reflecting on America's pastime. The book, and it's coming up in months, look for it, The Voices of Baseball, an updated edition and expanded. The Voices of Baseball, the author is Kirk McKnight, and it's been a pleasure reminiscing with you, Kirk. I wish you continued success in your career. Thank you, guys. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's always fun to talk sports and talk uh, current events with uh, with you guys. All right. You too. Well Join us next Friday. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great weekend.